Welcome. So our normal diet here at Fellowship Raleigh is verse-by-verse preaching. We're currently in the book of Acts. Uh, We are taking a little break. Last week, John McKay preached on Psalm 47. Today we're going to, or 46, uh, today we're going to continue in Psalms in Psalm 1. Uh, my name is Josh McConaughey. I serve as a lay elder here at Fellowship Raleigh Church, um, and I am just filled with joy as I have a chance to open God's Word with us. The title of the message today is Means of Grace from Transplanted to Transforming. There's a few different passages we're going to go through, but as I said, we'll primarily be in Psalm 1 to talk about the grace we receive from God both in our salvation and in our sanctification, or the ongoing work of God in our lives. The main idea is that being sober-minded about our need for God and the immeasurable grace and blessing He offers us should encourage us to pursue worshiping and connecting with Him regularly. So when I say worshiping, connecting with Him regularly, um, one of the ways what I'm talking about is the means of grace, so the channels with which we can connect with God, we can be reminded of His truths, Uh, The main way that's done in the Christian culture is through things like devotions, um, a quiet time. And when you hear those words, what's your initial response? How do those words land on you? If you're like me, there might be some guilt. There might be some, yeah, I don't necessarily crush it in that area of Christian living. Um, So I want to encourage us this morning to move away from guilt. As Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. My hope is that as we study this passage, you would see that God has laid out for us a banquet that we can come and enjoy at any time. Um, Before we read today, though, I want to take a moment to kind of set the stage to provide the context of our current reality and hopefully establish why these means of grace that we can partake in are so important. So the first point this morning is that we live in God's world, the reality that we live in, that we live in God's world. My wife and I have four boys, um, so our home life is quite loud, confusing, borderline chaotic. Um, and the way that we manage that is to try to provide some guidelines, some, um, some boundaries. We believe these to be very wise and reasonable. I don't know if our boys would always agree with us on that. Um, and the main battleground is screen time, trying to manage the screen time. Um, our boys definitely don't think we're reasonable on that one. So they recently, my older two, purchased these things that we thought were MP3 players with their birthday money. Uh, when they arrived in the mail, we realized that they were actually much more than MP3 players. And first of all, if you ha- don't know what an MP3 is, <laughs> this is a digital music file. If you were like me and went to college in the late 90s, there was this glorious revolution where we were transitioning from dial-up internet to cable internet, and all of a sudden you didn't have to go to Sam Goody's to buy... S- CDs, you could actually download music straight from the internet. Anyway, so they, brought, they bought these devices, and we thought they would just play music. It turns out they can like, text each other on them. They can take videos and pictures from our desktop and put them on there and watch them. Um, I mean, they're not that cool, but for them, you know, this is a screen they can hold in their hands. It's amazing. It's blowing their minds. And as they're handling them here and there in the beginning, my oldest son says, I can't wait to take this to bed tonight and play on it and just realize all it can do. Um, And when he said that, I responded to him with a facial expression. And that expression asked him a series of questions such as, under whose house do you reside? Under whose dominion or authority do you think you exist? 
And then I spoke to him in words, and I reminded him that because he lives in our home, and because we love him and care for him, he will definitely not be taking his MP3 player with him to bed at night to, to stare at it and not sleep. My son, it seemed to me, had forgotten the reality in which that he lived. As Christians, I think we can do a similar thing. We can go about our lives doing what we please, making choices that mainly satisfy our own desires and wants while forgetting there's a God who both made everything and also orchestrates all things. In Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is one of those truths I think we would all nod our heads and agree that we live in God's world, that he has made it. But like many things in the Christian faith, there can be a pretty wide chasm between what our brains intellectually understand and what our hearts seem to pursue, the choices that we make. So because God created the world, the world functions in the way that he desires. The best way then to live in his world would be to follow his recommendations for how to live as, as outlined in his word. Sadly, many in the world have no idea how to live in God's world, and sadder still are many Christians who desire to constantly, consistently, and repeatedly live life according to their own terms. That's a, a huge struggle for me. So we live in a world that God has made. It's governed by his rules and guidelines. And at the same time, we live in the reality of our own pull towards sin with, with the world. We, we, we live among the impact of the sin of others. And we also fight against spiritual forces of evil. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm where David's writing and he's recognizing simultaneously his sinfulness and also the goodness and the grace of God. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this is the reality for all Christians after the fall in Genesis 3. We can't escape it. In our next point, we'll be much more hopeful. We're going to talk about our identity in Christ. But before we get there, we have to deal with this reality of our sin. We have to recognize our propensity to pursue the things of the world in place of God, to seek a life of fulfillment in created things instead of our creator. And it's not just our sin that we deal with. We also deal with the sins of others. In Psalm 59, David is writing, and at this point, it's uh, 1 Samuel 19 is where this text is written from. So Saul has pretty much abandoned any kind of secret offense against David. He is openly trying to take his life. He has put men encamped around David's house. And in verses 1 through 3, David says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil, and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. Many in this room have hurts from sin committed to them in the past, family members, friends, coworkers, the church you went to before, the people in this room right now. The sin of others is definitely part of our reality. And if our own sin and the sin of others wasn't enough, there's also the reality of the work of the enemy, the spiritual forces of evil. Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
So spiritual warfare is a pretty broad topic. There's a lot of different ways it can be manifest. I'm not going to get into a ton here. I will say that I spent three years living in South America, and while I was there, I would see much more physical manifestations of spiritual warfare. Uh, I don't see it as much in the United States. I think it definitely exists, but I believe the, the strategy of the enemy in our area, <clears throat> in, in North Carolina, in 2023, seems to be more just a lulling to sleep of the Christian that they may settle into selfish patterns and pursue the things of the world instead of the things of God. When my boys turn nine, we go to the Creeper Trail, which is a bike trail up in Virginia. And the purpose of that trip, or the theme of that trip, is to live with eternity in view. And we talk about 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, be careful how you build, to not build with wood, hay, and straw, but to build with precious stones, silver, and gold. Paul warns us that at the end of our days, our works will be revealed by fire. The enemy would love for us to spend a lot of time focusing our energies on the empty things of the world. Deal Moody once said that our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. So the enemy would like nothing more than our church to be apathetic or just to be passionate about the wrong things. So we live in God's world. This is good news. We live with our sin, the sin of others, the spiritual forces of evil, not as good news. We're going to wrap up this time by establishing the reality we live in with some incredibly good news. We live as children of God with the Heavenly Father who loves us and desires to sanctify us. 1 John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are now positioned as a child of God, receiving all the benefits that come with being in God's family. In Romans 8, Paul says that we are heirs or co-heirs with Christ. In 1 Peter, it talks about, as Christians, we have this inheritance that awaits for us that can never perish, spoil, be defiled. So all these things are true. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, these realities of who you are in Christ are true. Earlier, I mentioned the face that I gave my son when he wanted to do his evening escapades with his MP3 player. If you take a moment and think about what God's face is towards you, a God's facial expression towards you, what do you see? Disappointment, judgment, confusion. For me, it's exhaustion. He just probably looks exhausted again. But none of these, none of these are true. If you've trusted in Jesus, the work on the cross, um, it, it purifies you and God's posture towards you is that of a kind, gentle, forgiving, persevering, and loving father. The story of the prodigal son best captures this. The younger son takes his inheritance, asks for his inheritance, basically telling his father that his father is dead to him. He goes off to the foreign land. He wastes his money, doing all the things he knows he shouldn't do. He reaps what he sows. He eventually comes to his senses and says, I'm going to go back because the, the hired workers in my dad's farm are living a better life than me, so I'm just going to go back and see if he'll let me work as a, uh, one of his hired hands. But that's not how the story ends, does it? What happens? It says the father is looking. He's waiting. And when he sees his son coming, he runs to him. He wraps him in his embrace. Before the son can, can say he's sorry, before the son can hand him his application to become a hired servant. The father looks at him. Um, he puts the robe around him. He kills the fattened calf. He throws a party. This is our heavenly father. 
This is how he feels about us. His son made some terrible self-destructive choices, but those choices did not have the power to remove him from his family. They did not make him no longer a son. So he loves us, and out of that love, he also desires to sanctify us or to move us closer to him. For Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So God starts his salvation, but he doesn't just end there. He begins a work that he will carry on to completion. Early in our marriage, my wife and I went to Disney. We had lived in Tallahassee and went to Disney, the Magic Kingdom, and Epcot. I think my Epcot was my favorite. I loved just walking around and seeing all the different countries and eating all the different foods. Um, it was amazing. I think there's a picture, maybe. There it is. Okay. <laughs> so this is us at Little Italy eating some gelato. This is before kids. You can see we're so carefree and well-rested. <laughs> so imagine we went to Epcot Center and we just hung out in the entrance. Um, we didn't actually walk around. We just kind of went through the turnstile and then just kind of hung out like in the entrance the whole day. Never went in, never walked around. We come back from that trip. Some friends invite us over like, hey, I heard you went to Disney. It's awesome. Tell us all about it. And we're like showing them all our pictures. I'm like going through the turnstile and the guy that like took our ticket and I'm like, oh, cool. So you got in, and, and then what? Then what'd you do? Did you go and see that amazing architecture in Morocco, the, the landscaping in Japan? Did you have some gelato in, in, in Italy? Did you go on the Guardians of the Galaxy ride? And we're like, no. We just walked in and hung around at the entrance, sat on a bench all day. Our friends would be quite confused. Why didn't they go in and enjoy the whole park? In the same way as Christians, we're not simply to obtain our salvation. We're not just to walk through the entrance of the park and then settle and hang out. There's so much more that God, of God that we can enjoy and experience as we grow in him throughout our life. So receiving the gospel message of Christ and sealing our eternal state is very important, and that is the biggest deal. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It also gives us the power to leave our old life of sin and to walk in newness of life towards joy, towards peace, all the fruits of the Spirit. So the reality we live in, that God made the world, we live in his world. In his world, we deal with our own sin, we deal with the sins of others, we deal with spiritual forces of evil. Yet we also have a secure identity of a father who loves us and offers us eternal life with him and invites us to enjoy him all the days of our life as we, as we are carried on to completion. So this is our reality. Hopefully, that gives us just a context kind of of where you sit in your chair right now. This is the reality of where you stand. So how do we respond to this? Well, let's look at Psalm 1. That'll help us. The Psalms are beautiful because they explain all these realities that I just mentioned. They talk about our vertical relationship with God, that he's the author of all things, that he made all things, that he blesses us as we walk in his ways. The psalmist also often deals with the, the horizontal things, our own sins, the sins of others, and how they impact us. The Psalms are very honest and raw about both the blessings and the struggles of a life pursuing God. So I'm gonna, I'll pull a, a, a page out of the John McKay handbook from last week, and I'll, if you're able to, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll, I will read Psalm 1. Chance to get up and move around. So here we go. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. 
He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Man, you can have a seat. So how do we respond to these realities? Well, that first word, blessed, the Hebrew word is esher, and it communicates an idea of, of happiness, of settledness. Um, often when we talk about blessedness, we're going to refer to maybe our family, our job, our car, our house, and those things definitely are blessings. Uh, but they are not the blessing that is being spoken to here in this psalm. He's talking more about his position with his creator, his relationship with God. Throughout the Psalms, this word is used to focus on how fortunate we are to have a God that's good and how fortunate we are to be able to walk according to his ways. So the blessed man or woman, how do they enter into this blessedness? Well, the psalmist begins by telling us what not to do. And sometimes to know what something is, it can be helpful to know first what it's not. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In this verse, we observe something often seen in Hebrew poetry, the use of parallelism. And in particular, this is called a climactic psalm, where subsequent lines pick up from the previous line and advance an idea. So the person who is blessed goes from walking to standing to sitting. Sorry, the person who is not blessed. This is the picture of the process a person can go through if they allow sin to rule over them and follow in the ways of the world. So the blessed path is not found by walking in the counsel of the wicked. So counsel during this time, for people originally reading this text, would have been something that was very relational, uh, probably among a close friend, probably over a meal, uh, face-to-face. Today, the counsel that we receive can, can be very different. That goes on as well. But a lot of times we get our counsel from a podcast, from uh, maybe a blogger, an author. There's no shortage of counsel to be out there, and I'm not saying those things are bad, but I do think it requires the Christian today to be much more discerning. As the volume, the amount of, of counsel that is out there has increased, I fear the quality of that counsel, the extent to which it adheres to and submits to the Word of God may not be increasing at the same way. So as our culture shifts away from biblical values, some of the louder voices, often sadly within the Christian community, offer, are more likely to offer counsel that's not based on Scripture. So where are you getting your counsel? Does the counsel that you receive come? Does it exalt God? Does it submit to His ways? Because whether we walk in the path towards life or death, whether we walk in the path towards God or towards the world will depend a lot on where we're getting our counsel. So the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners. The original Hebrew for stand describes a position of abiding, of kind of planting. So when it says stand in the way of sinners, he's not blocking sinners. It's actually quite the opposite. He's um, standing with them. He's joining their way. He's considering their ideas. So we've gone from casually walking around sin to now we're standing in it beginning to conform. And then finally, the blessed person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. The Hebrew term for scoffer is the idea of mocking, scorning, deriding. It often also connotates a person of power, of authority, a teacher. 
We have a lot of scoffers in our day. We have a lot of people who like to sit, offer many critiques, believe they are the authority on a given issue. Typically, these people are not interested in really helping whatever the issue is be resolved. It's almost as though Psalm 1 looked into the future and saw that one day there would be people behind a screen and a keyboard on social media giving all of their opinions. We like to think this is just outside the church, but I think if we're honest, we can, be, we can scoff with the best of them. We can give these people a run for their money. So sitting in the seat of the scoffer is the final result of this plan. So walking, standing, sitting. At this point, the person is seated. They have put up their feet, so to say. So as followers of Jesus, we obviously desire to not engage in this type of behavior or make that the mark of our lives. We want to walk in a path towards God. So how do we do that? Well, verse 2, the psalmist is going to show us a better path. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's look at this verse more closely. It starts with the word delight. Well, what does that mean? According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the authority of all things definition, it says that delight is a high degree of gratification or pleasure. So what are the things that you delight in? The things that you require no external motivations to do. No one has to pay you or remind you. You will just do them. Maybe it involves ice cream, certain television shows, participating in certain sports. So this man or woman feels a delight or a natural drawing towards what? The text says towards the law of the Lord. It's important that we notice that when the psalmist says the law of the Lord, he's not just talking about the Ten, of command, the Ten Commandments or the different laws in the Torah. He's talking about the entire book. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is a beautiful narrative story where we observe God's heart for his people on full display. He's sovereign over all things. He forgives. He perseveres with sinful people. He gives them guidelines for holy living. In verse 1, we talked about counsel and its role in guiding us either towards God or towards the world. If we desire to walk in God's way, our counsel has to come from the law of the Lord. Whenever we start our fellowship groups off, I try to remember to remind our group that it is Perfectly fine to offer opinions and counsel, but please try to make sure that the counsel you offer or the people in this group is based on Scripture that has some roots in the law of the Lord. I don't believe the Bible speaks to every single specific situation, but I do believe that the Word of God is sufficient, and it will speak in some capacity and guide us in all things in Christian living. So do you want a better marriage? Seek God in His Word. Do you want to respond better to past hurts and brokenness? Meditate on scripture and cry out to God. Do you want to be more patient as you raise your kids? Be more encouraged because your adult children are struggling to find their way. Do you want to be a better missionary to your neighbor, to a coworker? Do you want to disciple people in the local church? Do you want to go on overseas missions? Spending time with God through the word and through prayer has to be the starting point. So finally, this man or woman does not just delight in God's word, but he meditates on it day and night. And when it says meditation, he's not talking about like candles or some sort of new age ritual. He's talking about a sitting with the scripture, taking time, reflecting, considering deeply and applying it. We live in an age of efficiency and, and meditation really just seems to have no place. Uh, we don't want to do things slowly. 
We want to do things quickly. We don't want to do one thing. We want to do lots of things. We just want to knock stuff out. I'll listen to podcasts and I list them on, on them like the 1.2 or 1.3. I speed them up. I don't know why I do that. Actually, I think I do know why I do that. I think it's because I delight more in finishing the podcast than I do in actually learning from whatever was being taught in that podcast. So please pray for me. Earlier today, I mentioned that many Christians are starting to go away from the life-giving truth of the Bible and allowing the culture to dictate their beliefs. Well, how do we avoid that? Well, this is the solution right here. If we meditate on the Word of God, it's going to be really hard for us to fall into some of the deceptions that we see. If Christians would routinely practice meditating on the Scripture, deeply considering it, applying it, getting to the heart of its message, and submitting to it, the problem of the shift away from Scripture towards the world would stop or at least it would be slowed. So there's two paths. God's way, the way of the world, or another way in the text it says here, the way of the righteous or the way of sinners. So where do these paths lead? Let's look at verses 3 and 4 and see what the end results are with these two paths. Verse 3 starts with the godly man, saying, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So living in Raleigh, in most of the U.S., um, if you go to any high building and look out, all you're going to see is trees. Trees are very common here. Um, they're not unusual. In Israel, however, people that are in the Middle East that are reading this psalm, trees would be very unusual. They would definitely stick out. This is a picture of a tree located in southern Israel. It's all alone, has no other tree friends. And the Hebrew word for planted here is actually better understood as transplanted. So it communicates this beautiful idea that a tree is taken likely from a dry, arid area, like that picture, a tree that's struggling, hardly getting enough nourishment, but then it's transplanted by a constant source of water and life. What an amazing picture of the gospel, of what it means to both be saved by Jesus and then to be given an ongoing source of life and strength to grow in God. So delighting and meditating on God's word makes us like a transplanted tree by streams of living water. And then what's the fruit that comes from that? What well, says that we will yield fruit in our season? Our, our leaf does not wither. In all that we do, we prosper. So the life is marked by fruitfulness, by a steady growth. Now, have you ever seen a tree physically grow? In our home, I'm not sure why, but the Google Street View is from 2013. And that's what our front yard looked like in 2013. Um, we have two trees right now. The third one on the bottom right, that one died, but I didn't know how to put it in the sermon, so we're just not going to talk about it. But there's two other trees that continue to live, um, and I have never seen them grow. But if I walk out my front door today and I look around, there are these pretty large trees, and they give shade. Um, they're, they're pleasant to look at. And this is a lot like what Christian growth and what sanctification looks like. You know, we live with ourselves, so we don't see a lot of times the growth. But if you could take the Google Street view of your spiritual health and self from 2013 and you'd look at it with where you are today, I'm confident you would see the grace of God in your life and the ways that he has grown you, he has borne fruits in you. So the Christian who delights and meditates on the word of God will not only be able to bear fruit, but they can also withstand seasons, difficult seasons, and not wither. Last week, John McKay gave us an excellent illustration of the palm tree and how it can withstand pretty hard circumstances. 
There will be seasons of our life following Jesus where our main goal may not be to necessarily grow by leaps and bounds, but to simply not wither under difficult circumstances, but remain faithful to push our roots, our roots deep into the water. The way to do this is to stay connected to God again, to delight and to meditate on his word. So lots of hope here for people who know God, who are following his ways to the best of their ability. Obviously, no one does it perfectly. What about the other path? What's the end result of the wicked or the sinner? Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. So in contrast to this tree, deep roots planted by living water, we have this chaff. Chaff has no life, has no foundation, has no roots. Chaff has no say in where it goes. It simply gets blown around however the wind desires to take it. Not at all a hopeful picture. It's the exact opposite of the tree planted by streams of water. So hopefully as you consider this text, you can see the tremendous benefits that await the Christian as we consider his word, as we delight in and meditate in the scriptures. Now, if I asked everyone here how confident they feel in their own regular devotional time, um, if they ever struggle, I imagine most hands would go up. I know mine would. So before you leave this service, thinking that all you need to do is to try harder or do better, I want to remind us that though we do have a role in pursuing God so that he can sanctify us, everything ultimately begins with God and is going to be sustained by his gracious hand. It's God who, as we read in Philippians 1, began a good work in us and will carry it on to completion. If you flip the page to chapter 2, Paul tells us to work out our salvation. So we're given salvation as a gift and then we work it out. And the verse right after it says that it is God in us who works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's God who, in Psalm 1, transplants the tree by the stream. He saves us and then provides the steady source of water. If you feel stuck this morning, if you have no delight in God's word, then that's where I would encourage you to start. Call out to God, pray to him. Ask him to reveal the deep need that we all have for Jesus and to begin to foster a delight in his teachings. And as we consider our personal time with God, let's be careful to not have the wrong agendas to, his time, to that time, to this pursuit. In an article titled Devotion, Not a Quiet Time, author and apologist Greg Kokel says, devotion in the sense that I'm using the word is different from devotions. My goal isn't to squeeze a sense of well-being out of the encounter, but to focus entirely on him, worshiping him, thanking him, and devoting myself to his purposes for the day. The focus is entirely on God, not on my feelings, surrendering myself to the Father, no matter how I feel or what befalls me. So the goal is not to walk away with some sort of of feeling, but simply to focus on God and who he is and his goodness. And I, I think if you focus on God and his goodness, you will find that that feeling will come as a secondary result. If you consider who he is, the amazingness of our God, his mercy towards us, I think you'll, you'll desire to live for him, to exalt him. Regular time with God is a get-to. It's an opportunity. It's an encounter with the Almighty, not a transaction or a box to check off. So as we finish our time talking about some practical applications of ways we can pursue God daily, let me start by encouraging us to keep our goals and aspirations attainable. 
I work about two minutes across the street, Newburn Avenue, at Alliance Medical Ministry. It's a clinic for uninsured adults in Wake County. And the first time I meet with a patient, um, when they come into the office, I don't tell them that I want them to eat a plant-based diet and begin to train for a marathon. If I did that, I think most of them would probably never come back. Um, these are uninsured adults. Uh, most of them have trouble with resources, have trouble with access to food, just lots of hurdles. Because I speak Spanish, most of my patient panel is Spanish-speaking, and a lot of them struggle with diabetes or controlling their blood sugar. Um, they love tortillas, they love rice, they love pan dulce. These things are very tasty, but they are not very good for you if you're trying to manage your blood sugar. So when I set goals, I have to think about this. And some of the goals I would set is, for example, okay, so instead of eating five tortillas with your lunch, let's do three for a, for a month. Let's try that. Instead of drinking a soda every day, let's drink a soda every other day. Instead of doing no exercise, let's try walking 15 minutes three times a day. So they leave and they come back in a few months and we evaluate where they are and we, we try to create even more goals. I've worked at this clinic for six years now and I found the strategy to be very effective. And I think there's something for us with spiritual health as well. You know, if your time with God right now is non-existent, do not plan to read the Bible in a year and set your alarm for 4 a.m. tomorrow to pray for three hours before you start your day. Uh, maybe consider reading one psalm a day, reading one proverb a day. Consider praying for five minutes in the morning. Just start small. Try to build progress. If you're on the academic calendar, we just have a few weeks until life is going to take off. So what are some of the things, what's one thing you can do today? What's one rhythm you can start now so that when life begins to take off in the fall, um, you can have a constant source to be tapping into the goodness of God? So there's a place at the bottom of your inserts where you can write down a goal today if you'd like. A few ideas, if you have the Uversion app on your phone, they have a lot of Bible reading plans. That's something you can consider doing. I'm a huge fan of journaling. It might not be the most masculine of practices, um, but our brains go a million miles a minute, um, but our hands can only write so fast. And there's actually a lot of research, even in the secular world, um, that shows how beneficial journaling is because it, it requires our brain to slow down. It requires us to slow down. Um, it moves us towards that posture of, of meditation. I was talking about Maybe you could add some Christ-exalting worship to your day when you're driving to work, when you're brushing your teeth and getting ready for the day. Personally, I find exercise really helps me. I don't understand why, but when I go out and jog, my mind clears. I can, I can consider the things of God. I can praise Him. Consider taking walks, being out in His creation. If you feel like right now you just can't add anything to your life, then I would encourage you to consider how you might redeem some of the things that you do every day. Hopefully that there's some regular bathing that goes on. Those are a few minutes you could use for prayer. You could put verses up around the bathroom to remind you of who God is, how much he loves you. Um, you could, when you're folding your child's shirt, you could pray for your child. When you're washing their kitchen, their cup or their dish, you could pray for them. Uh, one thing I've done with prayer is that every Monday on my drive to work, I pr try to pray for my wife and my boys. Every Tuesday, I try to pray for the leaders of the church. Every Wednesday, my fellowship group members. Um, and I don't, I don't do it perfectly. There's days where I, get, I pray for my wife and my oldest son, and then my mind just goes. And for the rest of the trip, I don't even know what I'm thinking about. 
Um, and my, my three younger sons did not uh, receive their father's prayer blessing that day. But I know that I, my heart is towards my children more than, and I've prayed for them more often simply by putting that in place to try to do that every Monday. So, yeah, with seasons, it's really hard. We have a lot of young families, too. I just encourage you to do the best you can. Redeem the times that you can. I know from personal experience, our oldest son is 11, so I haven't slept in a decade, and my time with God has been just really choppy, and I've cried out to him often um, just to desire to be more consistent, and he's been gracious towards me. Um, I look back to my, that season of life in college, the three years I spent on the mission field, and I'm so thankful for the times that uh, I was able to praise him. I was able to memorize some verses um, and just kind of have that foundation for the season of life I'm in now, which is just, it's just harder. So always remember, none of these activities are the goal. Prayer, worship, study, journaling. These are just tools that we can use. These are means of grace as we pursue our true goal, which is to daily be made more and more like Jesus, to have our hearts more and more focused on the things of God and less and less on the things of the world. So Fellowship Royal, let's be a church filled with these types of trees, imperfect trees, transplanted by the grace of God, connected to streams of water, always green, leaves never withering, bearing fruit in all seasons, roots ever deepening more and more into the grace of God. Let's pray.